You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Dr. Paul Anderson, CEO of the Anderson Medical Group. And we're going to be talking about uh, outside-of-the-box cancer therapies. Super important. So, Paul, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me, what, what got you into um, even looking at uh, alternative cancer therapy treatments? Well, um, you know, I've been uh, involved in the world of integrative medicine for about 25 years or so at this point. And um, early on, I, I uh, had more of a general type practice, um, at least the first couple of years. And uh, what happened was back in those days, it was pretty unusual to find practitioners who would even, you know, be interested in integrative or naturopathic or alternative cancer therapies, because uh, it was fairly hostile towards that back then. And once people found out you did it for other things, they started to come with, you know, cancer and other types of chronic illness. Um, so it it really triggered, I mean, there's two ways to deal with that. One is tell them no, or the other is, you know, you have a steep learning curve. So um, of the modern probably era, you know, I was one of the people, you know, who got into this at a a time when some of the information was really starting to come out about potential benefits for integrative therapies. So it, it that's what started it, but it was really dr- driven by the fact that the patients needed it. And um, there, there wasn't a lot known at that time. So that's, that's kind of the beginning anyway. What are some of the, um, you know, the out of the box therapies? Everyone seems to know about chemo, radiation, resection by surgery. Yes, certainly. Uh, those are the, you know, chemo radiation surgery or the the big three as they call them um i think that the you know one way to look at it which is the way we usually speak with patients about it is <clears throat> those things might be totally appropriate sometimes they work quite well sometimes they don't work very well at all um and as i say sometimes they're totally appropriate but they only address a a small part of the problem now if you have a really aggressive active cancer, that small part can be very important. So I'm not minimizing that. But what I usually tell them is, is that, you know, none of those therapies deal with the entire rest of the person that has normal cells, non-cancerous cells that we need to keep working. Otherwise, they they won't live, you know, through therapy, et cetera. So um, when you think of it that way, then it's it's less of a say either or or an us versus them it's really those therapies target the cancer itself for the most part and what we try to do is work with the rest of the person to keep their immune system working which helps you resist 
uh, cancer, you know, growing or coming back. Um, and there's a lot of ways to work with the immune system and the normal cells uh, to keep them also on, you know, on track. So there are a lot of, um, depending on what the target is, there are a number of things in diet and nutrition that are beyond uh, the the big three: cancer, chemo, and uh, uh, surgery and radiation. But uh, also, um, on top of diet and nutrition, now we know a lot more about things from the plant world: uh, herbal type extracts, mushroom extracts, and things that actually have pretty good hardcore research behind them. It's just that they're you know kind of slow to get into the uh, into the system. So we use a lot of those type of things as the base. And then um, there's there are more, I guess, invasive or advanced type natural therapies that I've done a lot of work with and done research with uh, that would be like um, injection and intravenous type therapies using natural substances. So one most people have heard of is say high-dose vitamin C or, or low-dose vitamin C by an IV. Um, there's a lot of other things that, you know, that go that way as well. And then there's a lot of uh, things that even 10 years ago wouldn't have been on the radar of much of anybody, but are really coming much more on the radar, even in standard oncology. These are what I like to call some of the, um, you know, lifestyle and hygienic type things. So for example, um, the if you get somebody who has cancer to start to uh, move and do a, just a smallest bit of exercise. Um, and it's to their tolerance, of course, uh, they actually have longer life associated with better muscle activity. Uh, so meaning keeping, keeping your body moving, um, things such as intermittent fasting, which is something the patient can control, which is a a time during every 24 hour period where, uh, where you're not eating, drinking water, but you're not eating. That's been associated with some studies, uh, and, extension of life. Um, and then a lot of mental, emotional things. So it really, you know, it really covers a pretty wide gamut of, uh, areas inside the person and the patient who has cancer that don't have anything directly to do with the other therapies that they're doing, but they're very supportive. And the alternative therapies, um, you know, I've heard diet inter- interventions spoken about a lot, but I've also heard, uh, unfortunately many, Doctors and scientists saying, "Oh, there's no, there's no peer-reviewed evidence that diet affects cancer at all," which sounds pretty ridiculous to me. You know, <laughs> cells of your body over your life. What, what's the energy balance? What are they taking in? Air, food, water, but yet that has no effect. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to me. What's your yeah, thoughts there? Yeah, it's it, it is pretty. It's I mean, it is ridiculous. Yeah, it, it's um, it, and it you know literally I remember say 20, 25 years ago, um, working with other doctors more in the, you know, the standard world of medicine and hearing them, you know, very, uh, authoritatively tell patients, well, you know, your digestive tract complaints, whatever they are, have nothing to do with what you eat, which just sounds like the you know most insane thing in the world to say, but that was, that was the prevailing thought, you know, and, uh, and diet, if you brought it up around cancer, it was like, no, they need to eat, um, anything they want. And a lot of like ice cream and all this stuff to keep their weight on. And, if you look at any of the research now, and one of the things about the book outside the box that Mark Stengler and I did, Dr. Stengler and I wrote it, co-wrote it, um, 
was we we referenced everything that we talk about and we have over a thousand peer-reviewed references so when you get to diet or intermittent fasting or these other dietary related things there's a lot of references uh so a doctor who says there's no research is is just you know they're either uninformed or they're lying um it's it, it has a huge huge effect obviously now what they sometimes will talk about is you know once the person's cancer is very active a change in their diet may on one hand be very necessary on the other hand they may not notice a big change in a super active cancer that doesn't mean it's unimportant uh it's very important to change you know how and what you eat the problem in north america that i found is um and i say north america because the idea of integrating diet is much more uh accepted in other parts of the world um the problem in North America is they still look at like BMI and say, well, you're losing weight, so you need to gain weight. And they essentially it's any kind of weight is okay. So they have people eat, you know, ice cream and donuts and crap, which just puts the body into a, a chemistry state that fuels cancer. What the research shows is BMI is a worthless measurement. What it is, what you really need to look at is how much muscle mass are they gaining? If you just gain fat mass, you die faster. So you can be heavier, but dead quicker. So what we really work on with people is uh, uh, as clean a diet as possible. And then as uh, uh, high impact, you know, so whatever you put in your mouth to eat has very dense nutrient uh, sources, has really good nutrient sources, doesn't have a lot of sugar, doesn't have a lot of insulin uh, triggering things. Um, and those diets actually are associated with not only building muscle mass, but longer life. So, yeah, it's it, but but in America, especially in places where there isn't a lot going on with integrative uh, oncology or naturopathic oncology, the oncologists, it, it's sort of like it's perpetually 1970 for them, which is, yeah, that, and that leads to those sort of comments that, that are nonsense. So what kind of, uh, do you work with all cancers and uh, are there particular types that respond really well to diet or is it so individualized that even with a given type of cancer, it uh, really depends on the person? Yeah, I think essentially that is the, um, that's the sum and substance is it, it hits people. And really what I would say, having done this for a long time, is that uh, integrative cancer therapies it hit different people completely. They can have the same cancer, but their response is completely different. Um, and that's kind of the same with diet. Now, what we see is there tends to be a, a core around diet that is helpful no matter what people have. And then you can be stricter or a little bit more lenient based on your personal response type of cancer. Um but what we always tell people up front is, and you see this, you could say the same thing for chemotherapy, really. But with any dietary or other health intervention that's not the big three in oncology, it's not so much, you know, all people with breast cancer respond to X, Y, Z. It's people with breast cancer tend to respond to these things, but you might be uh, unique and we might need to do more of one of them or or take one out or something. So there's a lot... Because most diet and other natural therapies work with your body. And you, if your body is really weak, it may not be able to do the same thing that somebody with a stronger vitality can do. So we have to, we have to work around that and get the, 
you know, get the body's vitality uh, up. But it tends to be, you know, like I said prior, um, we start with the core of clean eating, you know, so not a lot of, uh, we, we don't want outside chemicals. We don't want a lot of, you know, say preservatives, et cetera, other toxic material. Um, we try to get uh, really high, as I said, high density nutrient foods and um, and uh, low glycemic type of foods. So we're not, you know, feeding the metabolism with a bunch of, you know, pro-insulin and pro-sugar sort of things. And then we customize it from there. Any anecdotal interesting things you've noticed? Again, um, have you worked with people that are you know, stage four cancers or is it you know, always better to get them early? What kinds of uh, adages or anecdotes have you seen that really help to you in your understanding? Yeah, you know, we we work, pretty, uh, you know, from stage zero to one to stage four uh, because, you know, everybody needs help. And uh, yes, I you know, I would say as a general comment, if we get somebody stage zero, one or two, there's a lot more you can do and you have a lot more, you know, long term uh, successful outcome because you can you can affect those lower stage and grade cancers a lot faster and better. Now that being said, many people are not diagnosed till they're stage three or four, and so there's you know unless they were involved in prevention or something, there's you have to treat where they come in. And of interest is yes, the lower stage and grade cancers you know, much longer life if you look at all the stats and everything, even with conventional care. But um, back when we were doing uh, outcomes research with stage four patients and a research that I was involved in, uh, people who did integrative oncology measures on top of any other thing they were doing tended to live longer than uh, people statistically who had the exact same stage and grade of the same cancer who just did conventional oncology. So, you know, length of life is, is a great measurement, especially at stage four. And uh, what we saw over time was almost every type of cancer that uh, the patient had where they would incorporate integrative oncology, they would live longer, which is, is super, you know, it's, it's not only very encouraging, it also um, is what people are going for. They want maximum quality of life. And then, whatever extension of life they're able to get. Well, what, what's the model? Do you, um, you know, what if someone has an existing oncologist, a private care physician, how do you work with them? You know, do you get pushback from their, uh, their current doctors that they're with, or do you have regular doctors on staff and then you try to integrate everything? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little of uh, all of the above. What, what I would say to the bigger picture is, um, <clears throat> If you, if you go back 10 and especially 15 or 20 years ago, we would have patients who literally their their oncologists would say, if you work with anyone else, I, I will not treat you. So the patients would come in and they would they would be afraid of losing their oncologist because they're working with someone else. Uh, that that type of attitude is changing. And that's a good thing. Uh, I will say you still run into that, uh, but it's much less so than it used to be. So in the last 10 years, we've had a very slow but persistent increase in open-mindedness in the rest of the oncology community. And so what we try to do is inform and um, you know keep all the providers in the loop about what we're doing 
And what usually happens in any part of medicine, as far as, you know, collaboration goes, but especially in oncology is in the beginning, they can be kind of antagonistic or cold sometimes, and sometimes not. But the more information you share and the more scientifically you say, well, this is why we're doing these things, uh, the more uh, bridges you build as opposed to walls. And what what tends to happen? I uh, the best example of of this is one of the one of the I guess most antagonistic oncologists that we worked with uh, during the research project that um, you know was was a research partner actually. Um, after a few years, he actually emailed me and said, you know, I I still I don't agree with what you guys do, but I will say that the patients that you and I share that, you know, so you're treating them, I'm treating them, seem to do better, have better quality of life. And it seems like their, you know, uh, their outcomes are better. Um, So very, very slowly, you get these sort of changes, and you kind of build one oncologist relationship at a time. But in in areas, you know, you get to kind of maybe the center of the United States, uh, where there's a little less you know, exposure by oncologists to integrative oncology, et cetera, um, they can be pretty, uh, pretty spicy about it, you know, and, and basically say there's, you know, this is all crap and uh, you you shouldn't work with these people because they don't know what they're doing. So it's, it's, it's one doctor at a time, really. How do patients find you? How do they come to you? And are there any common stories when they come to you? You know, um, whether, uh, so we're in, uh, our clinic is in Seattle, <clears throat> and um, Seattle is a decent size, you know, metropolitan area. It also has uh, quite a bit of presence of integrative oncology, naturopathic oncologists, you know, and that sort of a kind of vibe to it. So people are a little more likely to seek you out, but largely it it it's kind of one of two um, propositions. One is they are near the end of their standard cancer treatment. So they've done, say, radiation and chemo, or they or they got surgery and they did 12 weeks of chemo, and then they're going to wait for six months and get another scan. That's kind of a, where a good portion of people come in and they say, all right, there's nothing that the oncologist is going to do for six months while we wait and see if the treatment worked or three months or whatever it is. Um, what can you do for me to help me recover from the chemo and the radiation or the surgery? What can you do to, you know, make my immune system come back online, et cetera. So that's sort of one population is the, you know, the after standard treatment group. The other are people commonly who may have stage three or four cancer where, you know, it's, it's more disseminated through the body and they know that most likely standard therapies are not going to cure their cancer or make it go away. And so they are literally looking for things to either add on or possibly they've been told that standard therapy isn't going to help their cancer. They're very motivated to find some other therapies to work. So they're sort of a, that's sort of a different place for people. And we have to be more aggressive in that, you know, usually in that instance, because they have a very aggressive cancer. Um, and and I would say um, the, there's a third area developing, which used to be very rare, but it's more common now. And that is um, what we call secondary prevention, where a patient is done with cancer, they're in remission or no evidence of disease, 
And basically their oncologist says, hey, you know, you're in remission, come back if you start to have symptoms or come back in a year for your follow-up scan. Patient will ask the uh, oncologist, well, what do I do to make sure I stay in remission? And they'll say, well, you know, Mm. live a good lifestyle, uh, you know, eat right. They don't tell them actually what to do. And we get those patients and there's there's so many things you can do when you're in remission to promote uh, longer remission, staying in remission, et cetera. It's just secondary prevention is, it's not on the radar of the standard oncology community for the most part. So we, we do a lot of that now that people didn't used to come in for that. So that's sort of, that's a, I, that's a big positive because it's actually preventing recurrence that we're working on there. Yeah. What are some interesting things you've learned in uh, keeping someone in remission? That's rarely talked about. Yeah. It's, um, it, you know, it's an area that's, it, it's, it's exciting because the person is in remission because most of the patients we deal with are having active cancer. So, um, then if you if you're looking at keeping someone in remission you can literally then step back and say well what would have prevented the cancer potentially in the first place and essentially what we look at is everything else about the patient's health that feeds into either a anti or pro cancer metabolism and immune system, et cetera. So the areas we look at in people are, uh, like we talked about, definitely their diet. We look into their uh, uh, their movement and exercise and are they... Uh, Paul, so what you said once someone's in remission, you want to keep them in remission, obviously, for sure. I haven't really heard this talked about at all. So what are some of the strategies you can do to keep people in remission? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And um, you know, as as I had mentioned earlier, it's an area that's you you don't hear about, and you in the past no patients ever would come in asking for secondary prevention. You know, when they're in remission, and now people do more and more because they realize they can modify um, things that would help their uh, uh, you know help their health in a way that would keep them in remission. So. It's exciting to me because, uh, you know, we we love dealing with our patients with active cancer, obviously, but that's a different problem. You're, you know, the cancer is still churning on. When you get somebody who who comes in and says, you know, I've been told I'm in remission, which is like, you know, everyone celebrates that, which is great. Um, but my oncology team doesn't know what to tell me to stay in remission, which is very normal. Um do you guys have a plan or a protocol or what you do for keeping people in remission? And we actually do. And we talk about it in the book uh, quite a bit too, you know, in prevention. So just so people know, primary prevention would mean you've not had cancer yet, but uh, maybe it's in your family or something. So you don't want to get it. Secondary prevention is you had cancer, you're in remission now or no evidence of disease and you want to stay there. And that's very, you know, legitimate. So the big picture things, and we really dive into these a lot in the book too, but if someone comes in and says, I'm in remission, help me stay there. We look at anything that either needs to be repaired after their standard cancer therapy or anything that would negatively affect their metabolism or their immune system function. So if they come in and they're just beat down from having surgery and chemo or radiation or something. We put a lot of effort into getting their healthy cells healthy again. And we do a lot of that nutritionally and uh, with lifestyle things, getting them to sleep better and, you know, all that uh, type of thing. 
once the body has some vitality though, that's when you have to be very aggressive if you're trying to prevent cancer from coming back. And so the areas, kind of the big picture areas we look at are um, what would affect their metabolic uh, baseline. So the metabolic baseline is either uh, pro-cancer coming back or anti-cancer coming back. And the things <clears throat> that we look at to get into that are actually um, the, the same things we do in treatment. We just do them a little differently and more aggressively. What are you eating? Uh, is it something that is very, uh, what we'd call sort of neutral to the metabolism? It's not stimulating a lot of insulin uh, output. There's not a lot of high sugar content and bad chemicals and stuff like that. So what you're eating, uh, how you're eating, meaning are you taking breaks from eating? So daily intermittent fasting, you stop eating at dinner and, you know, don't eat for about 13 hours is associated actually with longer life and remissions. Um, and then clean eating. So make sure you're not putting, you know, toxins back in your body because they're very triggering. Uh, and then there's how your body's working. So maybe you got really beat down, you're really fatigued and, uh, you either lost a lot of weight during the process or you put on some, you know, fat weight versus muscle weight, more muscle mass because it's related to the anti-cancer metabolism inside the body. More muscle mass is what we work on because that's associated with longer remissions and longer life. So there's all those things, you know, and then you add onto that, um, are they sleeping or not? Because actually uh, sleep-wake cycle hormones are associated either with uh, prevention of cancer or promotion of cancer. So not sleeping well is, is something we need to get people out of. So those things are one big area. And then there's what I call the, the, the things nobody ever thinks to look for in a, in, a, in a survivor of cancer. These are basically chemical things in the body uh, that affect the immune function either in a way where you resist cancer or a way where you promote cancer. And um, a lot of people nowadays, there's, uh, I mean, the term is very old, but nowadays people are more talking about epigenetics. And what epigenetics basically means is your, your genes are there with the code, but the epigenome, epigenetics, are the things in your life and that affect your life that actually either trigger good and bad genes or um, don't. And so this is why you see families where they have, say, some of the breast cancer genes and only part of the women get breast cancer, the other part don't. It's That's the epigenetic difference. So what we try and do then with the body chemistry and hormonal system is make sure it's as clean and epigenetically triggering of the good genes as possible. So the areas we look at there are toxin exposure, um, a lot of people have toxins they don't know about, but they become a huge thing if you just survive cancer. So we'll screen people for chemical, metal toxins, things like that. Uh, the hormone system is a huge manipulator of epigenetics in your immune system, et cetera. So we'll make sure their hormones are working correctly. They don't have too much or too little of them. Um, and then the other area we look heavily at in a, in a more investigative way are going to be, uh, chronic infections, because those will drag down your immune system. And if you've survived cancer often, you don't get symptoms from these things. So you don't realize that they're doing it. So we actually screen people, not just for their hormones and toxicity, but also 
uh, for some of the more common chronic infections. And, you know, with well, these... Quick, it, quick question yeah. here. Quick question. Yeah. So, so do, you, do you see in general that people's bodies, even though they may be in remission, they're in a, a, a compromised state because of the chemo, because of the radiation and the surgeries, and therefore they're more sensitive, let's say, to disturbances or imbalances or, you know, non-good non habits? Oh, certainly, yeah. And that's kind of the whole, you know, that's the sum and substance of the secondary prevention things we focus on is you, everybody should be looking at these things. But if you survive cancer treatment, cancer treatment is so hard on the body that um, it makes you much more open and sensitive to um, these sorts of disturbances. And then if these things are left to their own devices, um, the cancer that was in remission, you know, may have very fertile ground to come out of remission. So yeah, it's, it's a whole different body after say chemo or radiation or even surgery. So yeah, big, big deal there. With, um, well, I, I really haven't heard of any new drugs or new interventions or anything that is to be given instead of chemo, instead of radiation. It seems like they have a, you know, I guess pun intended or triple entendre, but these, these have a death grip on cancer treatment, chemo, radiation, surgery. I mean, so you have to work around them or work with them and, and help people, but any possibility there that these things just will not be used in the first place and these other therapies could be used? Yeah, I I think there's there's two answers to be, you know, give full disclosure here. Um, if you ask the, uh, a, a traditional oncology professional that question, um, where 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 traditional oncology's mind is, and it's not a bad place to be, it's just it's it's kind of narrow, is well, we're developing all these new what they call targeted drugs, and those are the future of oncology therapy. And and in the world of drug-oriented treatments, that is the future of drug-oriented treatments. Now these these targeted therapies are not bad. They're they're a they're they're a step up side effect wise from the older chemos, et cetera. But they're also not, you know, these things are not going to cure anyone's cancer. Okay. That's that that's what it sounds like, but it really that's not going to happen. So to be fair to the standard oncology world, they're developing new stuff to try and replace or whatever, you know, standard chemo. But really, um, they're not thinking of any other thing that might be useful. For us in the world of integrative oncology, naturopathic oncologists and all, you know, that whole community, we don't so much look at it as, you know, we're trying to replace chemo or radiation or whatever, as there are so many things that need to be done to help the body either fight the cancer, minimize the cancer, whatever, that if someone comes to us and they have a, let's say they have a cancer where there's like an 80% five-year success rate with a type of chemo, we're likely to say, hey, let's support, that's got good odds, let's support that chemo. We get a lot of patients come in and their oncologist literally tells them the chemo is so unsuccessful for your type of cancer, if it was me, I wouldn't even do it, which is that's a change too, where oncologists are just saying that. And in some of the cases where we've had those patients, where they, the oncologist said, there is no treatment for you, or you're too old for chemo or whatever. 
we've had some of our best results with those type of patients uh, because the you can actually access and work with the body uh, and the immune system to you know extend their life through uh, again getting the metabolism calmed down so it's not pro cancer and then getting the immune system anti cancer essentially. So if you had to have a Pareto of things that would help people, you know, what would that be? Would that be diet first, exercise first? Would it be removal of the, you know, environmental insults or toxins and what the sleep, you know, what's the, how do you look at it? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that happens with, uh, with the world of integrative oncology is you can, you know, you can get overwhelmed as a patient because ultimately you need to work on all those things, but so, you know, sometimes you can, you don't have the bandwidth for it. Um, so one of the ways that we work with people and, and this is something that I, I knew theoretically, but then looking back over a couple of decades worth of patient experience, it became very clear that without some basic pillars in the treatment of a patient, if they don't work on the the big three first, then all the other fancy treatments, whether it's mushroom extracts or vitamin IVs or whatever, don't work as well and they, and they don't stick. And so what I always tell people is the big three pillars are all things you have control over that we can help you with. One is the diet and metabolic things. So what, what you're putting in your body for food and fuel, et cetera, big, big area. Uh, the next uh, is uh, what we call muscle, which is muscle versus fat metabolism, and that's getting moving and all of that. And, and literally, muscle metabolism is anti-cancer. It's like longer life, et cetera. And the last of the three, uh, so it's diet, muscle, and then the last is your mind. Um, and the mind really reaches into a lot of areas. Of course, there's you know there's your own you know it's 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 really can be uh, devastating, of course, to have a cancer diagnosis. Some people get so depressed uh, that that creates all sorts of other problems. You know, depression is not associated with longer life, and it's reasonable to be depressed. But you got to you have to work on that, you know, with the person and with maybe some professionals. But the other thing that the mind gets into is also your relationship uh, mentally, emotionally to your cancer. That's a big epigenetic uh, factor. How you're thinking. Uh, but also your relationship with those around you. If you have a, if you have a lot of really super negative people around you, you do not have as good of outcomes as people uh, that surround themselves with supportive folks that are, you know, helping them. Um, and then because the mind is so intimately related with like sleep, wake, and the circadian rhythm, you know, we usually talk to people about these these factors of the mind. So there's the internal dialogue with yourself. If you have a mental emotional problem like depression, anxiety, that's got to be dealt with. Uh, then there's the external mental stuff. What are your inputs? Like are you getting a bunch of negative crap every day, or, or are you really working on, you know, uh, uh, a, a realistic positive outlook? And then the recharging of the mind, which is sleeping appropriately, etc. So those are the, those are the big three. And I always tell people like it's true. Over time, when I look at people who did really well with integrative cancer management or stay in a remission or whatever, all of them were doing something with those three things every day. People who ignored their diet, you know, ignored the muscle versus fat thing, ignored their mental state, they could do a lot 
of effort into other therapies, integrative therapies, natural therapies. And if they weren't doing those big three, it's it's like it falls through a weak foundation. So those those are the big three, really. Well, getting a diagnosis melts uh, your face off, you know, I know personally. So yeah, mastering Sir? the mental game is uh, is very difficult. That's probably, I would say, the number one thing. And then, uh, then you're able to do all these things. You know, if you feel like depressed and uh, you're going to give up and everything, then you won't want to work out. You won't want to eat well because you feel like, what's the point? So I guess I would say that the mental is number one. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's that's the biggest hurdle to get over, really. Um, and it's not that you ever leave it, as you know. It's it's that you're you know you're dealing with it in a different way than when it first hits you. Um, and you know, you you also, and I know I have seen people who you know they internalize. You get the diagnosis; it's the worst you know news you can get, pretty much, and they get stuck somewhere they get angry or they get in denial or whatever and you know we we all know that if you stay there that's not a healthy place to stay um but it's also you know uh, like, like you said super intense and difficult to get your brain out of that so that you're motivated to do stuff yeah do you find that um people blame themselves like they did something wrong and that's why they have cancer anything there like do you have a psychologist on staff that kind of talks people through issues or yeah it's you know i um it is uh universal that people um people have any number of responses to their diagnosis and um one response is just what you brought up which is oh well this is my fault you know because of whatever you could fill in the blank right um and we work with uh psychologists some psychiatrists and some other mental health people who specifically focus their practices uh, in uh, patients who have cancer. Uh, and that's something that's becoming, you know, much more recognized, but a lot of cancer patients are not told to, you know, work with somebody. So yes, we definitely, on our intake, we we delve into this with patients. And if they're not connected with somebody who's a professional in that area, um, we we certainly encourage them to do that and and most are very willing to do it because they they know you know that they need help they can't they can't kind of gut through it on their own so yeah we we work with uh mental health folks specifically focused on the cancer patient i don't know if you can help everybody or just people local to you but what does someone do if um you know they're not able to work with you for some reason and they want help they need help how can they even find someone that would help them what should they look for it's an excellent question. And uh, in, you know, in North America, depending on your location, you know, you may, uh, you may not know it, but like, let's say if you were in Seattle or Portland or certain places on the East Coast or whatever, you, you there might be a lot of integrative and naturopathic oncology practitioners around. And then you might get to a place, you know, like um, the, you know, the Midwest or something, and they, there might be just a few. So there's a couple of ways to, to look. The first thing that I would recommend uh, is uh, there are uh, board certified naturopathic oncologists in the United States and Canada, and they can be found uh, through our professional organization, which is uh, called the uh, ONC-ANP, so O-N-C-A-N-P. Uh, which is the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians. 
and they have a referral service on their website, um, which uh, is uh, is onkanp.org. Uh, but if you just search, do a search for ONCANP, you'll find the OnkANP. So that's one very, very good way and uh, avenue. The other is let's let's say you're in a place and you find nobody, you know, through that search. The other would be to search uh, integrative oncology. So two words, integrative oncology, because there are a lot of people, say, not associated with OnkNP uh, who do integrative oncology. And this is what a lot of the doctor to doctor training I do is uh, for for practitioners who are maybe MD or DO or nurse practitioners or PAs um, who have done extra training to become uh, proficient in integrative oncology. So if the Anki and P search uh, doesn't have anyone in your area, you can go and uh, do a search for integrative oncology practitioner. And what I recommend with people there is uh, just, just to look at the, the profiles of the different healthcare providers who do integrative oncology. And then, um, you know, unless there's only one in your area, I always recommend, you know, getting a quick call or look at their website deeply about their background, et cetera, and just see if you gel and, and resonate because that's that's the biggest thing. But those are the two ways I'd search OnkNP, find a physician or um, integrative oncology practitioner. And if um, a company or individual wants to reach out specifically to your practice, how do they get in touch? The the easiest way, uh, the practice is called Advanced Medical Therapies, and the URL is advancedmedicaltherapies.com. You also can go to cancerandchronicdisease.com, and that, that'll get you to our website. Uh, if if you're looking, say, on Facebook, it's just Advanced Medical Therapies in Seattle, and you'll, you'll find us there. And uh, either through Facebook or through the website, we, all the contact info is there. That's great. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.